It is so good to hear you sing. A Christian facing death in 1851 made this final entry into his journal before passing away. I know not how to thank God for all his marvelous loving kindness. I know not how to thank God for all his marvelous loving kindness. What an outlook to have at the doorstep of death. Makes me curious about the kind of life that someone would lead in order to bring them to a place with this type of perspective. I picture someone who's lived a long and healthy life, surrounded by loved ones, and yet that's not the case for the man who made this journal entry in 1851. Now, these are the words of missionary Alan Gardner, a missionary in Tierra del Fuego at the tip of South America. He was going to a people with no access to the gospel. And so Gardner and six of his companions found themselves in the midst of an unrelenting harsh winter in which each of the missionaries died of starvation. When they found his body, this was his last entry. I know not how to thank God for all his marvelous loving kindness. It was a meditation on Psalm 3410. The last of his thoughts as he was facing a cruel death and the excruciating loss of every one of his companions around him. It's so easy for us to infer God's goodness when good things happen to us. But Alan Gardner knew a secret. He must have been in some sort of contact with God in order to say in the absence of anything good, I know not how to thank God for all his marvelous loving kindness. How could anyone write those words at a time like this? And is it really possible for us, for you and I today, to have an outlook that's similar to this? Where in the world can we find hope that can sustain and bear up even under the weight of dying of starvation? Well, our series through this small book of Habakkuk has provided us with a historical look at a man who said something very similar. And it's given us a God-given confidence that you and I, you and I, we too can know this kind of hope and we can know where this kind of hope is found. And so my prayer this week for each of you here, my prayer for friends watching online who have not come to find this kind of hope, my prayer has been that this sermon would make most clear how this type of hope is only, it's exclusively found in God alone. And my prayer is that we would be convinced today through Habakkuk chapter three that there's simply no other alternative. There's no other place that we can turn in order to find a hope and a joy that can stand up even in the midst of the unthinkable the seemingly unbearable. And so I'm humbled to preach this passage this morning. It's a stunning text. One commentator said, it's the most beautiful spirit of submission found anywhere in the scriptures. And while I'm not, uh, I think the Garden of Gethsemane shows another beautiful spirit of submission. Nevertheless, this passage is breathtaking. It's a text that each one of us are in need of. We're in need of hearing this and receiving this because what this text teaches us about God, we're also in need of hearing this and receiving this for what it will teach us about us. And so I'd like to pray to help, uh, to ask the Lord to help us to, to see it, 
and to receive it. So let's pray. Our holy God, we are blind and are in need of light. We are ignorant in need of wisdom. And so would you open our ears so that we would be able to grasp quickly your Holy Spirit's voice? Would you melt our conscience? Would you melt our will that there be no hardness left? Would you be the good shepherd this morning to lead us into the green pastures of your word? And would you cause us to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts? And would you fill us with peace so that not even the unthinkable circumstances of this world would be able to calm the surface of our souls? Would you help us this morning to love you? And would you remind us most of your love for us? And so give us great faith. Help our unbelief. Meet with us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. And if you're here and you're in need of a Bible, we have Bibles that we would love to give you at the information table. If you're online and you're watching and you don't have a Bible, if you would just reach out to us, it would be our joy to get you a Bible, a copy of the Word of God for yourself. It's a gift to have God's Word. And what better way for us to get to know the God of creation and of salvation and of all of history than to read His Word if you'll remember Habakkuk, he began this short little book in, in angst and in turmoil as he complained to God about the injustices that he saw, but he didn't see injustices from other godless nations. He complained about the injustices that he saw among God's people. And so he cried out to God. He asked if God was still on the clock and if he was still on the clock, if he was going to do anything about it, and rest assured, God made clear. He responded by letting Habakkuk know that he was never off the clock, nor will he ever be. And that he was going to do something about all of the injustices. He let Habakkuk know that injustice wasn't winning the day. Injustice wasn't going to, to, to win the war. No, he was going to be faithful to execute judgment and justice for the sin of his people. And yet he was going to do it in the most unorthodox of ways. He was going to use a, a godless nation. I was just even thinking, how in the world could we summarize this? It would be as if something similar, the, the analogy breaks down because we're not the people of God as a country but it would be as if we thought, God, you are going to judge our country. How are you going to do it? It's not going to be through a holy group somewhere. You're going to judge our country through ISIS. This, you're, you're actually going to use this group who does wicked, and you're going to come, and you're going to use them to judge us. And then Habakkuk said, well, wait, if you're going to use a godless nation to judge us, then how in the world are they going to get off? going unjudged for all of their wickedness and all of their evil. And God, again, makes clear to Habakkuk that after using this godless nation, the Chaldeans, to execute his justice, he would then turn around and judge them to bring justice upon them for all of their wickedness. And so the picture that emerges throughout all of Habakkuk is that no wickedness is safe. No wickedness is protected and immune to the judgment and the justice and the wrath of God. And so last week, beginning of Habakkuk chapter 3, the questions for Habakkuk die down. The angst is, is calmed. The turmoil seems to be settled. And we ask ourselves, how in the world does this happen? Because his circumstances have not changed. In fact, the news have, have only made the circumstances even worse. And so how in the world can joy be found here? Well, we saw last week in verses 1 through 15 
Habakkuk turned his heart to God in submissive prayer. As Jenny just read, the last few words of this chapter. This is a a song. It's a a prayer expressing itself in song. How in the world does he get here? Well, we said last week, Habakkuk pleads God's mercies, verses 1 and 2, and he remembers God's ways, verses 3 through 15. And though we broke this chapter up into two sermons, this chapter is a unified prayer. And so the prayer continues. And perhaps you're listening and you're saying, okay, I hear you, Habs. I begged God for mercy and I scoured the scripture to remember his works. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? I'm begging God in the midst of injustices. I'm begging God in the midst of distress. I'm begging God in the midst of my soul's turmoil. I'm begging for his mercy. And I'm reading the Bible and I'm seeing the ways that he has proven himself faithful time and time again. But I'm not being affected. My heart isn't lifting. So what do I do now, Habakkuk? And what we'll learn from this last section are two more lessons for what it means to live by faith. I mean, this whole chapter has painted a picture for what it means for the righteous to live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. And so if we're going to live by faith and we plead his mercy, that's where it begins. We remember his works. And we'll see in our passage today in these few verses. Two more lessons. The whole book has been pushing and pointing us to walk by faith even in the darkest of days. Biblical faith trusts God in unthinkable suffering. And it finds joy in God during days of desolation. And so these two lessons will serve as the two sermon points this morning. First, wait on the Lord at all times. Wait on the Lord at all times, verses 16 and 17. And then second, rejoice in the Lord in all things, verses 18 and 19. And so this prayer, kind of, we've broken it down into four ways in which the righteous can live by faith. We plead God's mercy. We remember his works. And our first sermon point this morning We wait on the Lord at all times. Look again at verses 16 and 17. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no fruit, no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and yet and there be no cattle in the stalls. Habakkuk clues us in to, to how this vision and how his memory, the, these reminders of God's past acts of judgment and deliverance, Habakkuk lets us know how he's affected by those things. And it's clear that he is, he's humbled tremendously. The language here is graphic in the Hebrew. This isn't some cute literary device about, uh, I was shaking because it was, uh, it was symbolic of something. No, no. God's ways have silent, they have caused the prophet to go silent. And the prophet has shut his mouth, not because the ways of God are easiest, but he's becoming convinced that the ways of God, even if he doesn't understand them, are best. Even when his ways include suffering and unthinkable hardships. His attempts to maintain this dialogue that he's been having with God for two chapters, they come to an end. It results in his bowels, his inward, his innards churning an uncontrollable buzzing and quivering of his lips. His bones feel like they are rotting away, unable even to hold him up. 
And all of this, why? Well, the end of verse 16 tells us, because the day of distress is coming. The day of distress is coming, and they will be invaded and overwhelmed. Habakkuk believes that deliverance is coming, but he knows that it's only coming after judgment. When all he wants is relief and resolution, Habakkuk lives by faith by saying, I will wait. I will wait for what you have in store. This chapter is evidence that he has learned this reality over these three chapters. He has submitted himself to God's timetable, and he doesn't know the the year, he doesn't know the month, he doesn't know the day, he doesn't know the hour. History actually tells us that the people of God would wait another 15 to 20 years, living in this constant state of angst, knowing that what they're experiencing now, the injustices are about to be, that's going to that's gonna seem like a walk in the park compared to the judgment that is coming. One pastor speaking of this idea of Habakkuk not understanding or not knowing when God would be faithful to his words said, Christians, be careful in your waiting to not provide God with a date or a deadline. And yet, sadly, many in the church do exactly that. And when God doesn't meet the date and the deadline that we have in mind, then we write him off as somehow being indifferent. And maybe that leads some to just give up on God. And so if I'm going to wait, then I'm just going to kind of resign in this place of, well, I don't know what God wants. I don't know what he's doing. I don't think he's coming through. And so therefore, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to do anything. Let's just be clear. That is not what the Bible holds out as what it means to wait on God. It's not a resigning or a giving up on God. You can look at Psalm 106, verse 13. It's not quitting. To wait on God is not passive. It's an active resting. It's an active trusting. It's an active holding steady through faith. Until God moves or until God calls us to move. Just listen to Psalm 33, how it ends. Our soul waits for the Lord. And so that's, that's the declaration. We are waiting for the Lord. Now listen to the verbs that are used to describe what it means to wait on the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. And so the psalmist says, we are waiting on you. And in two verses, he mentions three ways that they wait. We rejoice, we trust, and we hope. And so, church, we need to rid ourselves of this passive posture that says, well, I'm going to wait on God means I'm going to do nothing until he does everything. And there is wisdom in not moving until he makes clear. But I want to be clear from the scriptures. Waiting on the Lord means that you are wrestling. You are actively trusting and hoping and holding steady through your faith in God himself. And so do you wait? On the Lord, does this sound like waiting in your life? When God has spoken clearly in his word about his standard for holiness, do you actively trust him and act accordingly when the opportunity for sin comes along? Like, are you willing to wait? When God has spoken clearly in his word about his standard for ethics, do you actively trust him and act accordingly 
when the pressure from the office is to cut corners and to cheat and to lie? Well, if I don't do that, then I'm going to lose this. Will you trust that God has spoken and therefore I will wait and do what is right? When God has spoken clearly in his word about marriage or about other relationships or generosity, are you willing to wait even when it's difficult to say no to the non-Christian dating relationship, to say no to flirting with the other who's not your spouse, to say no when given an opportunity to bend your life around yourself or to hoard for yourself and not give to the Lord. Friends, waiting isn't passive. It involves great effort to actively trust and to act accordingly. And Habakkuk makes clear that it's not just waiting. I mean, this little section doesn't put the accent over waiting. It's waiting over unthinkable circumstances. And the way he pictures it in verse 17 would be utter economic devastation. And these circumstances are not figurative. They're severe and they're literal. This is exactly what history tells us happens when the invasion unfolds. Do you remember when we walked through the book of Lamentations? And we walked through Lamentations, and and perhaps you will remember just reading uh, Jeremiah just kind of walking around and surveying the the destruction and the devastation. Do you remember when he would write and he would say, there were children that were fainting and dying in the streets. There were people that were eating children for livelihood. There was such devastation and wickedness. People were starving. And, And the economy of Judah at the time was exclusively agricultural and livestock. And so what what Habakkuk paints for us in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, is a picture of utter desolation. I mean, listen to his list. It's comprehensive. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines or yield of the olives. Those three foods were the choice foods of the day. They were considered to be the best products of the land. And so Habakkuk says, the things that we've been enjoying, that we really don't even need, they're coming to an end. But he doesn't just talk about the luxuries. The list continues. The grain of the field the flock, and the cattle. Those are necessities. I mean, Habakkuk is painting the most devastating, dark, hopeless picture for what they're about to live through. We will not even have the things we want, nor the things that we need. And just a reminder, this is exactly what God promised his people back in Leviticus chapter 26, that if they did not obey, just listen, 26 verse 18, if also after these things you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Look down at verse 20, your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 17 makes clear the same thing. I mean, God told his people, there are consequences for your disobedience and they will be my judgment and my wrath poured out against your sin. And so in Habakkuk's day, no income meant uh, meant starvation. And if you would starve, then you would certainly die. And Habakkuk has resolved to wait through everything, through the worst of what this life will bring. Ah, it is so easy for us to to wait and say, okay, I can wait when life is fun and relatively void of any major setback. 
And if we struggle to wait during the difficult days, that ought to clue us in to this reality that perhaps we're putting our hope and our joy and our security and our identity into the blessings that he gives us at the expense of putting them into God himself. Friends, if your hope and joy and security and identity are bound up in your circumstances or they're bound up in the good gifts that he gives you, then it will always be shifting. Your identity will never be secure. Your hope never solid. Your joy never unending. Because it's shifting. If you put all of that in money, then the, money, and then the market tanks It's shifting. When you put that into your job and you lose it, it's shifting. When you put that into your health and it fades, it's shifting. When you put that into a relationship and it ends, it's shifting. If the greatest joy in your life ever leaves you, on what then? On what then can you center joy on? True, deep, lasting joy is only found in the unchanging privileges and promises of God. And in an unchanged and in a very, very changing world, a world that's constantly ever changing, the God of Habakkuk is the refuge for all of our hopes for security and joy and identity. When you lose any blessing he gives, it's possible to still have joy secure, hope secure, identity secure. It's possible whenever you anchor all of those things in God himself, not in what he gives. So plead his mercy. Remember his works. Wait on the Lord at all times. It brings us to point number two. Rejoice in the Lord in all things. Rejoice in the Lord in all things. Listen to verses 18 and 19. Again, keeping in mind, I'm just gonna read 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet. And makes me walk on my high places. This isn't just a resolve to wait. This is a resolve that no matter what, I will wait and be rejoicing. I will be exulting in God and in his salvation. There's nowhere to run from the judgment. There's nowhere to run from his wrath. There's nowhere to run from what is coming. There's nowhere to hide from the worst of the circumstances. And yet in the midst of all of that, Habakkuk resolves to take joy in God. And this isn't just wishful thinking. Ah, I know I should be doing this, but I can't do it. This is Habakkuk throwing himself, saying there's one place in this whole world in the midst of everything where joy is found and I'm throwing myself. I'm throwing everything that I am at him because I want to cling to a joy that doesn't fade because the days are dark. God has made clear to Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. And this book ends with a prophet living by faith. Habakkuk was a righteous man. And he's discovered in God that there is a joy and a salvation that's even better than life itself. I wonder what kind of God you treasure. I wonder what the world would say about the image that we project based on our treasuring of the God that we worship. Would the world say, these people are crazy? They may say that. Finish the sentence. These people are crazy 
Because they are willing to lose everything as long as they lay hold to this God whom they believe is worthy of it all. Search your streets high and low. There's no one who's looking at your life and saying, huh, you have all of the same hopes and joys and and identities that I do. And you want me to come to Jesus and find something that's different? No thanks. No thanks. The fountain that Habakkuk runs to by faith in God, friends, it's open to you today. It's open to you. This kind of life and hope and joy, it's not found in the things that God gives, as great as they are. My prayer this week, Lord, please continue to be lavish in the gifts that you've given your people. But Lord, guard our hearts from wanting your gifts more than we want you. This is a song. Habakkuk chapter 3 is a song for all who trust in God. For every soul who has found true life, uncompromising identity, unfading joy, unshakable hope. Can you say this? Do you say this? Can you say, though life is the darkest it has ever been, yet I will exult, I will rejoice, I will overflow in worship. This is such a challenging passage, and it's such a breathtakingly beautiful passage. And here's the reality. There is a message that's being uh, propagated around this country. It's being imported into other countries that doesn't say this. It doesn't say, though things be terrible, yet I will rejoice. There's a, a form of the gospel, the prosperity gospel. If, if they reference Habakkuk chapter 3, they will reference 18 and 19, but they will leave out 17. And if you believe that what God desires most for you is, is to have more material, temporary blessings, then you, your faith will be crushed by the waves of suffering and the waves of wickedness And the answer is not you need to drum up more faith. No, the answer is that you need to understand that God uses all things for his glory and for his people's good. If you believe that God wants you at the top of the mountain every day, then when valleys come, you will be crushed. And if you've lived long enough, this is what you know. Valleys always come. Many people who think This message is what the world needs and it's attractive to the world. This is how they get there. They say, well, if the world can see how God causes us to prosper, then everyone would wanna come to God too. Like if I can get promotion after promotion, then all the people around me would want God so that they could get promotion. If I can get pleasure after pleasure, if I can get friend after friend, then everyone around me would want Jesus too because they could get those things. Friends, that is common and played out. That's nothing distinctive about the Christian faith. Everybody wants promotion after promotion. Everybody wants friend after friend, raise after raise. Make no bones about it. From the very beginning, God has said he will not share his glory with another. And God is not merely a means to a better end. Do you know what's compelling? What's compelling is not for your neighbors to see you get promotion after promotion and begin to go around and tell them that if they come to Jesus, they can get promotion too. Now, what's compelling is for your neighbors in the world to see devastation truck you, run you over, 
and for you to get back up, scarred and suffering as it may be, and to continue to trust and walk in joy. That will draw attention away from the world and the blessings that God gives. And that will put attention on the object of your hope. God himself. I'll never forget February 15th, 2015. It's the day that the video was released. Coptic Christians beheaded on the beach. Many of them in their early 20s. Beheaded after being tortured for refusing to denounce and to deny Christ. Reports were that while they were being beheaded, they were singing hymns to Jesus. They were singing hymns to Jesus. And I just think, Justin, you get so upset and so bent out of shape at the dumbest little things. And they sang. They saw that even if you stripped their very life away and they still had God, they had all they needed. Death wasn't the end for them. It was the promotion to the greater good. It was the promotion to the end. And so in the beach of martyrdom or the darkest days, on those days, your GPA doesn't matter. Your scores of followers and your likes don't matter. Your bank accounts don't matter. What matters is do you trust and love him enough to refuse to deny him when everything else is taken away because you know that if you have him, you have it all. And so Habakkuk, because he is convinced that God is like that, then he's able to say, I will rejoice. No matter what you take, no matter how dark it gets, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. His view of God led him to this resolution. I wonder what our views of God are saying about us. Many say God is good when the cancer scans are clear and when car accidents have survivors and when pregnancies happen and when marriage occurs and when promotions come. And you know what? God is good when all of those things happen. But he's also good in the valleys. Can we say with Habakkuk that God is good and therefore I will rejoice when cancer wins the battle? If you've not listened to Jonathan Evans his eulogy that he gave his mother, Dr. Lois Evans, the wife of Tony Evans, I would encourage you, begin at about minute 13 and just listen to what he says about how he wrestles with God and yet how at the end of the day he's able to say, God, even in the loss, I trust and know that you're so good. You're still good. Can we say that I will rejoice when children never come biologically? Can we say I will rejoice when marriage eludes us? Can we say I will rejoice when steady employment fails us? Is he still good? Because if he is, then he's worthy of your worship then, just like he is on the days when all of life is going well. And because he is, I'm here, I'm, I'm standing here not because I'm getting paid to do it. I believe that he is. Uh, by God's grace, I am getting paid to do Never. I believe this. And so you and I then are meant to take these words and to sing them. And that's why our gatherings are so unique. 
We sing not merely to say, okay, God, I'm saying this. No, we sing to serve, to stir the faith of brothers and sisters who walk in and who are struggling to remember. I'm singing for my brothers and sisters who can't see the goodness of God. And you know what? You will show up to gatherings and you will not be able to utter the words that are on the screen and brothers and sisters around you will be singing for you, stirring your faith. It's so easy to tend to lean towards you give, right? We, we know he gives and takes away, but yeah, we love it when he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. John Newton, in one of his letters, put it this way. Everything is needful that he gives. And nothing is needful that he withholds. Tim Keller has taken that phrase and put it like this. God gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. My non-Christian friends watching or here this morning, in some ways, I pray that you feel like I've been reading your mail. Not because I've been reading your mail, but because God himself would be speaking to you by his Holy Spirit through this sermon drawing you to see the folly of misplaced joys and hopes and identities and to see where true joy and hope and identity is found. People who go through life and to their death proud and still in sin, they will come to a woeful end. You will experience the justice and the judgment and the wrath of God against your sin. Your sin is not just your, hey God, my bad moment. No, your sin is an assassination against the very God himself. It's you declaring that you will not give him what he's worthy of, and in fact, you will, you will decide who gets it. You will decide how you give it. It's in essence you being God. And cosmic treason like that deserves an eternal punishment. Because it's against an eternal God. And that punishment is a literal, real place, a place of eternal torment called hell. And that punishment also includes a life of futility for whatever 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years he gives you on this earth. There is no hope for us because of our sin. And yet, in great mercy. Do you remember what Habakkuk prayed? In your wrath, remember mercy. And that's been, that's been God's card from Genesis 3. He remembers mercy. And he gives it to people who are undeserving. It's not that he just sort of winks at sin and says, okay, yours isn't a big deal. No, it's that he rightly, exhaustively punished sin. He poured out his wrath on his son. And his son earned, merited righteousness that we, do, that we need but don't have. And so the Bible says that at the moment of faith, when there's a turning from sin and a turning toward and trusting in God alone, that the righteousness that he receives is or that he earned has placed on us. We can receive it by faith. And the penalty and the wrath that's due us because of our sin is taken off of us and it's placed on Christ and it's exhausted at the cross so that then we stand before God, not as guilty sinners, but as redeemed sons and daughters of the king. And then on the third day, he rises declaring his victory over Satan and over any arrows of death that Satan would seem or would want to shoot our way. And all who trust in him alone, we get in on the resurrection life. And the resurrection life is the source of where secure hope and joy and identity are found. 
you will only be able to sing through the dark when you have experienced the forgiveness of the king. If you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and throw yourself on the gracious mercy that's available from God in and through Jesus the Christ. And if you have questions about that, talk to any member of this church, talk to any pastor of this church. Please reach out to us for your eternal good and for going through the rest of your life with a sense of purpose and not having a foundation that's shifty and shaky all the time, it would be our joy to tell you about the hope that is in God alone. And this whole passage ends, his head turns from the destruction that he would experience, and he fixes his eyes on the God of his salvation, verses 18 and 19. I wonder this morning, what are you more aware of? Are you more aware of your suffering? Are you more aware of the God of your salvation? I'm not minimizing any suffering. We want to lament. We want to grieve. We want to love those that are suffering. We want people to love and lament and grieve with us when we suffer. But our souls are steadied in suffering when we intentionally take joy in the God of our salvation. Suffering in this life is never as great as the suffering that is to come. We find ourselves in such a unique time in history. And what's crazy is that the most serious problem that we face right now is not our stance on COVID and, and what coronavirus is going to do within the next few months. It's not who's going to be in office in a few months. No, those aren't our, our most serious problems. Our most serious problem is our sin in relation to a holy God. And so contemplate his graciousness in and through Jesus I read Habakkuk and I walk away and the question that is stirred within my soul is not, God, why do you allow me to suffer in the ways that you do? The question that's stirred within my soul is, God, why in the world would the sinless son of God suffer in my place? And so why does he rejoice? He rejoices because of who God is. He's the Lord and the God of my salvation. He's, he's Habakkuk's strength. He's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of his people. He's the one who will make his people strong to stand up under the resolve in the midst of the worst that life has to offer. But I don't just rejoice over who he is. I rejoice over what he does. He makes Habakkuk's feet like the deer's feet that can scale the dangerous heights of mountains. Think big, big horned sheep in the, out in the, the country and on the mountains. They can climb and run on rocky crags and not slip and fall. Why? Not because of their power and their resolve, but because of the way God designed them. And Habakkuk is saying, like those animals that can get up in the most treacherous of places, you are my strength. And I can withstand the most treacherous of times. That difficult terrain for those animals, it's an opportunity to experience the strength that God has given them. So too are our trials. They are opportunities for you and I to experience the strength that God gives to his people through his Holy Spirit. And let's be clear, Habakkuk had a serious climb ahead of him. And the longer that you and I live, so too will we. And so Habakkuk invites you and I to join him on that climb, to wait and to trust and to rejoice and to sing. Habakkuk ends with a clear call to bank everything. Bank your everything on God no matter what. Even when judgment is certain, even when you need a rescue, don't know where it's going to come from. The counsel that Habakkuk give is, is not, well, go do a little of this and go do a little more of that and make sure you go to the... No, Habakkuk says, walk by faith. Walk by faith. And then he models that, showing us that biblical faith trusts in God even during the unthinkably difficult 
and it finds joy in God in the worst of circumstances. And so this letter leaves its imprint on us as we close the book by reminding us to turn to God. Turn with your confusion. Turn with your questions. Turn to God with your fears. Turn to God with your doubts. Wrestle with God. You should have no insecurity going to God. He is big enough for all of your fears and all of your doubts and all of your insecurities. But as you go to him, behold him. That's what Habakkuk needed. And that's what you and I need. We need a great view of who God is, especially during dark days. And Habakkuk, the book reminds us of God's ultimate purpose, that he will fill the whole earth with his glory. This was the mandate of Adam and Eve in Genesis. It's why we're to love our neighbors. It's why we're to go to the nations. Habakkuk invites us to find our delight in God. To be able to say with Paul, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things loss in view of him. It's why in the middle of the horrors of lamentations, children starving and dying, cannibalism happening, the temple being destroyed, Jeremiah can write this in verse 22 of chapter 3. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Friends, faith is the only way that you will get to this source of identity, security, hope, and joy. What's interesting is when they found the bodies of Alan Gardner and his missionary friends, it was near a cave's entrance. And they discovered that Alan Gardner had also written upon the entrance to the cave, my soul trusts still upon God. My soul trusts still upon God. Oh, to know the God that Alan Gardner and Habakkuk were intimately acquainted with. And friends, because of Jesus the Christ, we can. This song, this prayer, it helps us do that. No matter what comes, whether in plenty or in want, because God is enough. And people who know that God is enough are most satisfied in him. Let's pray. God, as the word has gone forth, we trust that you would now not allow it to return void. And so help us know how we are to respond. Help us know what it looks like to walk by faith. And so even as we sing, would you, would you just churn up belief within us that even in difficult days, we can have a confident assurance and a steady hope. Oh God, help us trust in you. And so during this moment of silence, would you speak to us by your spirit? Your servants are listening.